This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 13 of AFF On Air. It is Saturday the 15th of June 2019 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In this special edition of the podcast, I chat to John Bartels, who's a former Qantas A380 captain, who you may know as JB747 on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum. JB747 is one of our most active and respected pilot contributors on AFF, and he's answered literally thousands of questions over the last eight years or so in our very popular Ask the Pilot thread. You won't want to miss this interview, which is coming up shortly in the episode. But first, I'm going to take a look at what's making news on Australian Frequent Flyer this fortnight. And the US government has approved a joint venture between Qantas and American Airlines on trans-Pacific routes between Australia and New Zealand and the United States. Once implemented, the partnership will result in more code-share flight options and frequent flyer benefits for customers of Qantas and also American Airlines. And as part of the new agreement, Qantas will also launch two new routes from Brisbane to San Francisco and Brisbane to Chicago using Boeing 787 Dreamliners. Meanwhile, Virgin Australia and Virgin Atlantic have applied for regulatory approval to coordinate services between Australia and the UK. Virgin Australia already flies to Hong Kong and it co-chairs on Virgin Atlantic's flights between Hong Kong and London. The expanded agreement would allow them to offer more seamless transfers through Hong Kong, more co-chair destinations across Europe, and also better frequent flyer reciprocal benefits. The days of getting stuck on an old Qantas plane with those angle-flat skybed business seats and those outdated in-flight entertainment screens are finally over. Qantas in the last fortnight has retired its oldest aircraft, which was VHOEB named Phillip Island, and it operated its last flight at the start of the month from Sydney to San Francisco. And the plane when it retired was 27 years old. Qantas now has just seven uh, Boeing 747s left in its fleet, and these are due to be retired by next year. At the moment, the airline's jumbo jets are still being used on flights from Sydney to Tokyo, Santiago, Johannesburg, San Francisco, Honolulu, and Vancouver. But the San Francisco and Honolulu routes will switch to smaller aircraft before the end of this year, and Vancouver is only a seasonal summer service across December and January. If you want to take one last ride on a Qantas 747 before they're all gone, though, and you don't want to fly uh, on a long-haul international flight, they will be operating some one-off domestic flights within Australia over the summer. And there's a list of flights in the article linked in the episode notes if you're interested. Meanwhile, the only other Qantas aircraft, which was an A330, to still have those older-style Skybed business class seats, is currently being refurbished, meaning there are now no longer any aircraft flying with those older seats. The A330 is being refurbished with the same business suites that are found on the rest of Qantas's A330 fleet. Emirates is introducing new unbundled business special fares, which come with a business class seat, but exclude lounge access, Emirates chauffeur drive service, seat selection, and cannot be upgraded. These fares also do not earn any Qantas points. It's quite unusual for an airline to not include lounge access or seat selection with a business class ticket, and these fares could work out being cheaper for people that don't value the extras that normally come with a business ticket, but it could also set a quite a concerning trend if the model is expanded or other airlines start copying, so watch this space on that one. 
Air New Guinea, the national airline of Papua New Guinea, has expressed interest in taking over services on the Cairns to Hong Kong route after Cathay Pacific withdraws services at the end of October. Meanwhile, Cathay Pacific is now well into a cabin refurbishment program for its Boeing 777s, which sees an extra seat added to each row in economy class. The new economy class seats are obviously narrower as a result, but Cathay Pacific's chairman recently said that customers are loving the new seats. Okay then. Australians with a Visa Infinite or Visa Signature credit card are eligible for a fast track to Hilton Honours Gold status, thanks to a current promotion. Until the 31st of July, eligible cardholders can receive instant Hilton Honours Gold status by staying just two times at any hotel within 90 days. To take advantage of the promotion, you need to register online. And eligible credit cards include the St. George Amplify Signature, City Prestige, City Signature, NAB Reward Signature, and the Virgin Money Velocity High Flyer credit card. Amex Platinum and Centurion card holders will no longer be able to use their priority pass benefits at airport, bars, and restaurants from the 1st of August. Priority Pass members normally receive a $36 food and beverage credit at participating airport outlets in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and the Gold Coast as part of their membership. But those with a Priority Pass membership through an American Express credit card will no longer be eligible. Construction has started on a brand new international airport in Peru's Sacred Valley. Chinchero Airport will eventually replace the existing Cusco Airport and become the new gateway to Machu Picchu. But environmentalists are warning that the project could destroy ancient Inca artifacts and cause irreparable damage to Machu Picchu. Finally, Qantas is currently offering 30% off classic flight reward seats in economy class for travel between the 23rd of July and the end of March next year on Qantas or Jetstar. The promotion is running until Sunday the 16th of June, which is tomorrow. That's what's making news this fortnight. For regular news updates and travel deals, make sure that you've subscribed to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette. And you can also follow us on Facebook under Australian Frequent Flyer. I'm going to take a quick break now. After the break, I will be joined by the one and only John Bartels, also known as JB747. Hi. This is Clifford Reichland of the Australian Frequent Flyer. Are you having difficulty in redeeming your Frequent Flyer points? Did you know that Matt manages the popular award flight assist service from Frequent Flyer Solutions, our sister website? This personalised service makes it easy for you to get where you want to go for the minimum amount of points. Go to frequentflyer.com.au for more. In this episode of AFF Air, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to John Bartels, who is a former Qantas pilot that you may know by his AFF handle of JB747. John has been an active contributor to AFF's popular Ask the Pilot thread ever since it was started back in 2011. Ask the Pilot, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a place where all Australian frequent flyer members can ask questions to real-life pilots, and the responses have always been extremely insightful and interesting. The Ask the Pilot thread now has more than 13,000 posts, and it's a fantastic insight into the world of aviation, how aircraft work, and the life of a pilot. 
JB747, who is our, our most active contributor on that thread, who retired from commercial aviation earlier this year, having finished up his career as a captain on the Qantas Airbus A380. But he's still contributing to AFF and answering questions for us. John, welcome to the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast. G'day, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And I wanted to start by looking back at towards the start of your career in aviation. Why did you initially want to become a pilot and how did you get started in your career? Well, there's actually a picture of me when I'm about five years old drawing on a chalkboard, drawing aeroplanes. I originally grew up in Werribee, which is just west of Melbourne. And at the time, it was in the middle of a triangle formed by Avalon, where the Mirages were being built, and Point Cook, where the RAF trained their students, and Laverton, where Argy was based at the time. So there were military airplanes overhead all the time. So I was just interested from that point onwards. Okay, and then so you started your career as a military pilot, is that correct? Well, no, I started my career as a backseater. Um, oh. I was actually a, a Navy observer, which is basically the same as a RAF navigator. And that was just a quirk of recruitment um, systems that I didn't really understand at the time. But on the other hand, it meant that I did pilot's course a little bit older and perhaps a little bit wiser, so it may have helped me anyway. Okay, and, and where did you do your training to become a pilot? Well, we started the training in uh, 1979 at Point Cook, so it was just a RAF pilot's course. It was a very large course, started with 40 people, and it was a, about 15 Navy on it. And uh, 18 months later, exactly half of us graduated, having gone through uh, Point Cook and Pierce. Okay, and, and how long were you flying over at the military before you decided to go into commercial aviation? Well, my total career in the military was 12 years. And basically half of it was a, as a backseater, as an observer, and the other half as a pilot. So from the pilot side, I, after pilot's course, I flew the uh, McDonnell Douglas A4. And then when the government of the day basically said that we were going to lose them, I went down and instructed for a little while at Point Cook. And at the time, the RAF were losing a lot of guys to the airlines, so I thought that was a pretty good Guernsey to get in on. Okay. <laughs> okay, and so at that point, did you go over to work for Qantas? Yeah, I was lucky enough to go straight from Point Cook into Qantas. So one week, basically, I was flying CD4s and teaching people how to fly, and a week or so later, I was on a course to learn how to fly a 747. Okay, so you started your career with Qantas with a, on the 747. That's a pretty nice uh, first gig. Were you a second officer then? Yeah, everyone's a second officer. So uh, okay. everyone coming into Qantas does that. Okay, and do you remember um, when you were at Qantas, where did you go on your first trip? Well, my very first trip in Qantas was just down Sydney, Melbourne and back again because in those days they used to carry second officers on every flight of the Classic, so even the short flights. My first real trip was to uh, London via Singapore. That sounds really nice. And was was that direct, just um, Melbourne, Singapore, London, or Sydney, Singapore, London, or were there a few other stops <laughs> at uh, that point? Was the classic in those days, it couldn't actually do it in, in one stop. So it was uh, up to Singapore and then to uh, Bahrain and then London and then the reverse on the way back. Okay. And uh, what were the main differences, would you say, between flying for the military and then moving over to commercial aviation? Was that quite an easy step or was there quite a bit of extra training involved? There was a lot of learning of the rules involved because basically the military the military works under their own rules. Um, flying the airplane was fairly straightforward, although there was a lot to learn, but it was uh, nothing unusual about it. You had to learn how to fit into a totally new system 
and there was a fair bit of learning involved in that. And, of course, the biggest learning event of all was learning about just flying around the rest of the world. So when you say flying around the rest of the world, do you mean um, like dealing with the different airports or dealing with air traffic control from different places or just visiting you know, new destinations or uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Well, as the rules worldwide aren't standardised, so that's the first thing you've got to sort of start studying on day one and you probably never finish because the Americans have their own rules, the Europeans have their own rules, Australia, small place that it is, has its own quite different rules. So you need to be familiar with all of them. Back in the days of the military, you know, I'd either fly to Nara or Pierce or whatever. It was unusual even to take the aeroplanes to another place. So we didn't have to be familiar with multiple airports at once. In Qantas, you could be going to, I don't know, 20 or so different airports in a year. And they all have their own quirks. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise that. And which types of different aircraft did you fly with Qantas? So you're on the 747 and obviously you finished up on the A380. Um, were there any others that you flew? Well, I was a second officer in the 747 Classic, so the 200 and the 300 for four years, and then I was lucky enough to get a first officer slot on the Classic. So I flew that for 18 months as a first officer. And then the 747s turned up, the 400s, and uh, I was able to move onto them as a first officer almost as soon as they arrived. And then I went over to the 767 where I had a command slot and I stayed there for 12 years. And then back to the 747 in command for uh, five years, I think. And then the 380s turned up and I jumped to Airbus and finished up the career there up to nine years on the 380. Okay. And uh, I guess there's a bit of training involved in every time you're converting uh, to a different position or a different aircraft. Uh, did you find the the jump from the 747 to the A380 being a Boeing to an Airbus was, was more difficult than, say, changing between a 747 and a 767? Very much so. Not, it's a funny one. It's still an aluminium tube that you can control how much power it's got and where it's pointed. So the basic rules are the same, but procedurally they're very different. And there's just quite a bit of difference in the, the mindset, how you manage the autopilot, just the overall the overall management of it's different. So I'd probably say Airbus prescribes more items and they want you to stick exactly to what they say. Boeing is a bit more flexible. And certainly going from the 747 to the 767 or vice versa was a relatively straightforward conversion. The 380 was probably the hardest one I ever did. But even so, it's still only, it was only a month longer than the others. While you were flying at Qantas, obviously Qantas over the years has flown to lots and lots of different destinations and airports. Uh, did you have a, a favourite place that you've flown into during your career? Well, the two favourites were probably pretty easy to guess. I liked London and I liked New York. Okay. Uh, and Vancouver was quite a favourite too. And do you say that for the destination or because they were interesting or challenging airports to fly into? Well, they're both straight, reasonably straightforward to fly into. It was just uh, interesting places once you got there. Okay, fair enough. The most challenging airport to fly into that I went to probably would have been the original Hong Kong. Um, but that could be very nasty weather-wise. And the famous IGS approach, we had a turn of 47 degrees, I think it was, in the last few hundred feet was always interesting. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Did you ever have to go around at Hong Kong? I can imagine that might be a really challenging approach to do over at Kai Tak. Funnily enough, I never went around at the old Hong Kong, but I've been around a few times at the new Hong Kong. Oh, okay. There you go. So yeah. over my career, I've actually not had that many Garians. Um, of 34 years of flying, I'd probably be I'd be surprised if it was 20 Garians. Okay, that, that's pretty good statistics. And I guess also the takeoffs equals the landings. That's also, that's also really helpful. In the airline industry, it's pretty hard to try and get away from that one. 
Yes, <laughs> for sure, yeah. And uh, did you ever fly any famous passengers, any royal family members or anyone like that? Well, you flew lots of celebrities of varying degrees. You know, the, the David Attenboroughs of the world. Um, he was a lovely man, actually. Um, but they're behind the cockpit door, so they're really the cabin crew's business. I was never one to go back and necessarily say hello to them. Okay, fair enough. And over your career, is there any particular moment that stands out as as a highlight or as a particularly proud achievement for you? I think getting initial command with Qantas was something to be pleased about. Firstly, the the course itself was fairly stressful, and so that was um, was nice to have that over. But they don't hand out commands willy nilly, so it was very pleasant to get it, and it was a high failure rate, and that was also nice to get past that hurdle. And uh, you mentioned the course was quite difficult. What did the the course involve to become a captain on the 747? The course for me was I had to simultaneously learn the 767 from the 747 and go from the right-hand seat to the left-hand seat. In themselves, simple enough. The problem really is that when you're a first officer, you have a particular mindset about what you think a captain does. The reality is when you're a captain you realise that they give you a first officer to do all those jobs you used to do. So your job, your mindset should become bigger. You're really managing the entire picture as opposed to worrying about the minute details. And so all first officers doing command training largely have, to have a first officer's mindset when they start. They've got to lose that and just get a bigger picture. Okay. And you were quite famously in command of Qantas Flight 30, which was a 747 flying from Hong Kong, originally bound for Melbourne, when an oxygen tank exploded and the flight obviously then diverted to Manila. Could you just take me through how did you respond to the situation? What, what happened? What was the sequence of events and what was going through your mind during that incident? To be honest, I've really got no idea what was going through my mind. Not much, I suspect. Um, basically, we were flying along. It was a nice day. We were held a bit lower than we wanted to be. We were planned at 33,000 feet. We were stuck at 29,000 feet with some traffic ahead of us. And we were just doing a little bit of planning to see whether we could do a sneaky move off track because we're coming into a radar environment and they can often help you get off track and climb up through another level. And we were thinking about trying to go to 37,000 feet. And uh, all of a sudden there was a very loud thud. It was very much like someone slamming a door. And Bernie, the first officer, said engine. As he said that, the autopilot disconnected and the airplane sort of rocked and rolled a little bit. And to this day, I can remember looking at, at the engine displays and seeing all four of them just sitting there showing me 1.57, which was the power ratio, but basically it's exactly what they should have been saying, so it wasn't an engine. Then we got a warning popped up. It's an ICAS display. It's called just It just shows various warnings and levels of warning and said door right two. Now the doors on a jumbo, the passenger doors, are what they call plug doors. And they're like your bath plug, but put in the other way around. They literally cannot open when there's pressure against them because they're larger than the hole. And when they, if you've ever looked at them, when they open, they pull into the airplane a little bit and they rotate and then they go out and open. So this message came up and told me this plug door was open, which sort of made no sense. And I reached down to pull up the rest of the door display to see what that was saying. And as I got, my hand got halfway to the button and then we saw it's called a pop-up. And it's information that's normally hidden, but when parameters are exceeded, will pop up and display. And the bit that popped up was the cabin altitude. 
and it showed pops up at 10,000 feet. So it showed us that in a few seconds, the cabin had gone from where it was supposed to be, which is probably about three or 4,000 feet, to 10,000, and it was climbing very fast. So at that point, we didn't know what had happened or why, but we knew we were depressurizing. So you put that together, a large bang, and we decided from that point on, we were going down. And so then we ran the depressurization checklist, which basically tells you to put your oxygen mask on to make sure you can talk to each other and communicate. And you close a couple of isolation valves, which might fix the problem in some cases, and then you just basically go down. Because the autopilot disconnected, Bernie was flying the airplane manually, and he'd been flying the airplane for the entire sector, so it just worked out that he kept going. And then, so about 20 seconds after the bang, we got the airplane started to descend. By that time, it had fully depressurized. So the cabin was already up at as high as it was going to go. Then in the descent, we got about another 25 warning messages, none of which we could actually do anything about, and which were very confusing because they were systems that were sort of all over the airplane. There was no, normally when things fail, they're somehow related to each other. In this case, they weren't that we could see. We found out later on that the relationship was in the wiring. The wiring ran through the same part of the fuselage. But then by the time we got to 10,000 feet, where everyone could breathe properly again, we really had resolved that the airplane was flying okay, that we weren't going to be able to get into the systems back, so we went to Manila. And that was about the extent of it. Wow, okay. And then so, so you landed in Manila, and then um, what happened after you landed? We, was it uh, an evacuation or was it an orderly taxi to the gate? Or, and, and what happened with the passengers? Well... The airplane was, we were told by the cabin crew that the um, there was a hole in the floor and that they could see to the outside. Well, that's concerning. Yeah, it was concerning. Um, in fact, the exact quote from the CSM when he rang up was, nobody's been hurt, there's a hole in the floor. What was the last bit? I've forgotten the last bit. But without knowing why, or it, on the door shut, it made no real sense to us, but the airplane was flying reasonably normally. A lot of systems were gone, but there was no reason to consider that we're in much more danger than we were. So the biggest problem we had in the landing was that one of the failures we had was the anti-skid, and on a wet runway, that can double your landing distance required. Manila, where we touched down, was actually dry, but at the far end of the runway was a rainstorm. (laughs) Having lived in Manila, that doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, thankfully, that stayed clear of us till we landed. We landed on the reciprocal of duty runway, so we actually came to a halt amongst all the aircraft that were waiting to depart because um, by landing in that direction, we kept ourselves away from that rain. We didn't have to go into any cloud. We weren't very trusting of the displays and systems because so many of them had failed, so we sort of kept it as simple as we could and just did a visual approach just like you do in your Cessna. Um, we came to a halt near the end of the runway, but we hadn't blown any tyres or had any issues with that. And then we sort of just came, we stopped and we went, looked around a little bit, thought, what do we do now? (laughs) Um, There was no reason to evacuate people. We pretty much thought that if it was something really nasty like a bomb, it would have killed us already. We couldn't see anything that made us think that we should run away. And we knew that if you have an evacuation, you are going to hurt people. At that point, we hadn't hurt anybody, so I didn't see any reason to change that. Mm -hmm. So after a few minutes, we shut down all the engines and, of course, the fire trucks were just sitting around us at the time. And a couple more minutes, I remember a user arrived and came on the runway in front of us. And that had an engineer from Cathay Pacific who plugged in. And we had a chat to him. 
and we decided that we could probably tow the aeroplane. So we towed it to the gate and the passengers just embarked normally at the gate. Okay. And as you said, there were no injuries. Um, and I guess the, the was the cabin relatively calm or I guess probably you weren't really thinking about that at the time? I'm told all the guys were there that the passengers were mostly calm. There's a few had a bit of a, you know, panic fit or whatever you want to call it, but mostly they were pretty good. And I think in that first few minutes, people wondered whether they were going to live or die. But after about four or five minutes, when it settled down on the cruise at a lower level, I think most people figured that they were probably going to end up with a good story, but that was the extent of it. Mm. What, what did you tell the passengers or did you tell them anything um, during the event? Um, I didn't tell them anything during the event because I had too many other things to do. Fair enough, um, yeah. When we levelled off and we'd made our decision to go to Manila and we'd tidied up the cockpit a bit, um, see, part of the things that had failed were some of the displays on my side had failed. They were still up on Bernie's side. The autopilot had failed because some of the control runs had been cut. And when we sort of got it put back together again as best we could um, and we were on the way to Miller, then we figured we had enough time to have a chat with the people. And basically I said, look, I don't know what's actually happened, but right now you're safe and we're going to Manila and we'll be there in, I think, half an hour or so. And then I spoke to him again before we landed and told people that I expected the landing to be normal. So I didn't see any reason to get people too hyped up and worried about it. There was nothing I was seeing that made me think that it would be anything other than a normal landing, and that's how it turned out. And did you find out in the end what the cause of the all these issues was? No, I spoke to the head examiner from CASA a number of times, the HSB guy, and he was a metallurgist, and he would have loved to have had that bottle to look at. Mm. But no part of the bottle survived. There was, oh, no. yeah, they did get the regulator, but that's not really part of the bottle. It's just attached to it. But they do know the bottle, it's about, the bottles are probably the better part of a metre high and, I don't know, 200 mil across. Um, and they have 1,800 PSI of oxygen in them, so there's quite a lot of energy in them. It failed near its base. So it failed at the thick part near the bottom. And they know that because they got an imprint of it. Um, in some of the roof structure. So it was pretty much unheard of. The bottles are made without any welds in them. There's no joins. It's a single piece of metal that's formed. And as far as anyone was able to find out, no bottle has ever failed in static <laughs> situation. Yeah, it was it was indeed a very unfortunate event. And it's like the probability of that happening must be so low. You can look at it another way. It was actually in many ways a fortunate event. Um, it, the aeroplane got on the ground. No one got hurt. There are many of those bottles on the aeroplanes and in other aeroplanes. And depending on where they're positioned, um, the outcome could, could differ quite a lot. That particular bottle had spent half its life as a 767 Crooxy bottle. And the 767 is only two of those bottles, and they're only for the cockpit. So going bang there might have been a little bit bad. Um, depending on its location, this was a number four bottle in a, in a rack, Depending on the location, it may have done more or less damage. Okay. And um, you were promoted from a captain on the 747 to an A380 captain not that long after the QF30 incident. So going over to the A380, what, what would you say was your favourite thing about flying on the A380? Favourite thing about flying on the A380? Well, there's a stock Airbus answer for that, um, and that's that, and that's a simple thing. It's got a tray in front of you. You can put your meal on it. <laughs> and your coffee as well? Well, no, your coffee goes on the side near the, near the joystick. There's a little holder for it down oh, there. Oh, there's a drink holder. Oh, that's nice. That's right, yeah. Um, look, I enjoyed the, the airplane, the, the Airbus. It, 
it was quite different. And I'd been flying Boeings for a lot of years at that point. So it was nice to do something that was a bit different. Not everything in the Airbus is smart or as well thought out as I'd like to have it said. But as we're seeing with Boeing, the same thing applies to them. It was overall a rather nice airplane to fly, though. And uh, you sometimes talked about on the on the Ask the Pilot thread about the regular simulator sessions that you had to do during your training. And uh, from what I've read on that thread, they sounded really quite intense. I'm wondering, could you just take me through what a, I don't know if there is one, but what a, what a typical simulator session would be like when you're practicing for the A380? Well, when you're doing the course, the simulators are quite different to the ones you do when you finish the course. Okay. Basically, they'll work their way through systems in the aeroplane. So you'll have a there was one one we did one day it was a sydney melbourne flight so that was a straightforward but we taxied out take off which means you're practicing the basic stuff the bread and butter flying the checklist getting it airborne cleaned up normal stuff mm-hmm. and then they threw in on that particular one they threw in a loss of all engines for whatever reason and so we ended up with a big glider oh. that one then throws up a lot of other failures and as you imagine, there'll be all sorts of electrics failures. The aeroplane reverts to different laws. And ultimately, of course, they gave us back the engines, but we had to then land in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever it was with the aircraft in the degraded flight laws. So they did that in real time. And if you needed to look at it again, they'd stop and look at it again. And all sessions were a bit like that. You'd have partially normal flying procedures and then partially you'd into emergency procedures and they'd work through a particular part of it, hydraulics or landing gear or whatever. And then when you reach the end of the course, um, they'd put together a session that had a bit of everything in it and you came out ripping your hair out. <laughs> they do sound really, really difficult, but I guess it, as a member of the flying public, it does give me confidence that the Qantas pilots are very, very well trained and prepared to, as we've seen with um, with the incidents that you had, that you're prepared to, to deal with things when they do happen in the flight. I'm curious, you were just talking before about flight laws. Could you just explain what the what the flight laws are? Well, an Airbus is fly-by-wire, which means that there's no physical connection between the control stick and the controls. Any input you make is a request, basically, to a computer system to make the aeroplane do something. So if I put in left stick, I'm not saying move the ailerons in a certain way. I'm saying give me left roll. And the aeroplane will work out how to do that. In normal law, which is the way it is 99.9% of the time, it's very, very smart. You can't stall the aeroplane. There's stall protection. Um, it angle attack limits to keep give you that. It will limit how much angle of bank you can get. But, again, it's the limit is higher than you would normally need. And basically, it's, it's very smart and keeps you away from dangerous parts of the flight envelope. That can become, say, that could be very, very handy. For instance, if you had a wind shear encounter, um, you can just simply pull full back stick and it won't stall. You just get maximum performance out of it. Um, but as systems fail, it, it needs various systems to be able to do that. Um, so angle of attack displays, computers. And so eventually it'll reach the point where it simply doesn't have enough input to be able to work out what's happening. So instead of giving you dud results, Airbus degrade the laws and as they degrade they become less and less computerized and more and more a direct input from you so the next law after our normal law is is alternate law and it's got two levels of alternate law and in that circumstance the autopilot may or may not work automatic trim may or may not work and it's becoming more like well a 747 and the ultimate law, law is a direct law 
And in that case, there's no smarts at all. It just does what it's told. Very much like any classic airplane, like a 747 or a 767. Okay, really interesting. Thanks for that explanation. And uh, when you're flying on the A380, a lot of the, the flights are obviously quite ultra long haul and also overnight. How do you guys on the cockpit stay awake during the flight and do you get knocked around a fair bit by jet lag? Well, I could say you probably don't stay awake all night. Um, <laughs> the airplane has a couple of uh, crew rest areas up behind the cockpit. So on most of the really long haul flights, we've got a captain, first officer and two second officers. So we normally divide into an A and a B team once we get into the cruise and people can get a, a break. So on a flight over to LA, you'd normally expect to get a couple of hours sleep and on the way back, you'd hope for a bit more than that. And that makes all the difference. Um, okay. And as the captain, do you get to decide who goes on break when? Well, as a captain, you do. You get to decide who flies it, who, who goes on break. Most guys would delegate that to whoever was doing the sector. So if you give the first officer the sector, you let him run it. And that includes the brakes. That was, that was okay as long as I didn't give you one you didn't, didn't want. <laughs> yeah, and do you have any uh, any tricks for um, dealing with the jet lag? Or did you just kind of... Because I guess the trips are also not that long. Do you just sort of stick to your origin time zone the whole time? Um, because we fly at odd times of night. For instance, when you're going to Dubai, London, you left Melbourne at midnight. So you were already leaving at a terrible time of day. Um, there were no secrets to how you got around it. I just, if, when I got to my hotel, if I was tired, I went to bed. And if that meant that I was up all night and slept all day, then that's how it worked out. I didn't get too worried about it. In London, historically, we'd be out of bed at two in the morning, and by about five in the afternoon, the batteries would be well and truly run down, and we couldn't go to bed. Mm-hmm. You don't get used to it. Eventually, you just end up with this. I don't know. You go and if you go and leave for long enough, after a few weeks of leave, you start to feel really quite different, and that's you getting rid of the jet lag. So you basically end up feeling awful all the time, but that's the way you always feel. So you think it's normal. It's not desirable. No, no, certainly not. I guess that's just one of the downsides, and in a job that does have many upsides. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, and it was announced earlier in the year that Airbus is soon going to wrap up production of the A380 due to a lack of demand from the airlines for new A380s. And passengers seem to love the A380. I mean, it's a great aircraft to fly on. Um, but for airlines, was this? do you think it was the wrong aircraft at the wrong time? Or do you have any thoughts on that? The airplane was designed for an era that no longer exists. Um, it was quite late. I mean, they should have really been in service around 2000 or so, instead of coming to service in 2008. And in the interim... The big twins had really taken over. The fuel consumption of the twins per passenger is quite a lot lower. And whilst a 380 will work with a big load, it doesn't work as well with a smaller load. Um, And the other thing, of course, is it's a very large airplane. It's hard to fill, so the airlines have problems with that. Uh, You don't have, if, if, for instance, you ran 2787 Sydney Dallas versus 1380, you've got about the same number of seats. You have a slightly higher crew loading, uh, crew cost, but your fuel burn is probably going to be less and your flexibility from the marketing side of things is way better. And you can go to other places. You, this 380 can only go to, I think it's only 150 or better ports in the world. And even then they're quite restricted as to where you can go. 787 can go anywhere really. And that applies to the 777 and the 350. And in Basically, the 380 was defeated by the 777 and, and to another degree by the Airbus 350. 
and it does seem to be the way the industry is going. I mean, why would you fly one A380 uh, when you can fly two 787s with different schedules or to, to two different destinations and, and pay less for fuel? So, yeah, it's, it, is, it is a bit of a shame, but I guess they'll still be flying for a little while yet. Well, there's still some being built, so they'll be around for quite some time yet, but the second-hand market's not going to build up on them because they're too big and expensive and, and the problems for the smaller airlines are even worse than they are for the big airlines. So it's unlikely to have a great deal of second-level operation. Yeah, it has been really interesting to see with the second-hand, or the, kind of the lack of the second-hand mark of the A380s. I mean, airlines uh, like Singapore Airlines and Malaysian have been trying to get rid of them, and there's just no one wanting to buy them. So it's a, it's, it's a bit sad. Well, Singapore's airplanes, particularly the first couple which are being broken up, were very early production-run aircraft, and they had some quite major wiring issues. Basically, they, they made a wiring loom for it that didn't fit. And so there was all sorts of modification of that loom to make it work. From what I understand, Qantas actually delayed Nancy specifically beyond that that particular problem. So that was one of the reasons those early aircraft went. But Singer had them all leased and was just returned them to the leasing company. And of course, that's, that's their problem now, sadly. <laughs> okay. And uh, you retired in January of this year and finishing up with a trip to London and back. And the final flight was uh, was on VHOQG and you're operating QF36 from Singapore to Melbourne on the 27th of January, just at the end of the Australia Day long weekend. And I know that one of our AFF members, HVR, bought a ticket to be on your last flight. And there are also lots of people uh, following you along and wishing you well on AFF. Uh, for you, John, was there anything special about that last flight or was it just like any other trip you've done? I tried to keep it like any other trip um, because you don't want to go and well, basically make a mistake on your last trip. I probably tried harder than usual to make sure the last landing was a good one. Um, mm. There was actually a couple of passengers who were on QF30 who bought tickets to be on it, and uh, we had uh, a couple of cabin crew on that flight too. So it was quite a, quite a group of people I'd known for a while. That's really nice that they came along. Yeah, the company was quite, I mean, the, the first officer, there were two first officers on the trip, one for the first three sectors and a second one for the last sector because that's just the way their rosters worked out. And uh, they both went to quite a bit of trouble to, to make it a good, fun trip. And so, in fact, we got in quite early in the morning and one of the management people from Melbourne came out to meet us. So it was all a, a nice little send-off. Since retiring, uh, what have you been up to? Have you been doing some travel or have you been catching up on sleep or...? Well, I feel much better now. Um, immediately <laughs> after we retired, my wife and I went over to uh, New Zealand for a couple of weeks. So we flew into Wellington and uh, drove out from there, had a, a lovely couple of weeks. And then we were back from that for only a short period of time. Then we hopped in our car and hooked up a caravan and drove to Albany in WA. So that, oh, that wow. took us nine weeks, and that was that was good fun. Um, so it involved no airplanes whatsoever other than my drone. And since we've been back from that, really just been doing some housework and waiting for a few other things to come up. We've got uh, a reunion coming up in a couple of weeks' time, which is my pilot's course's 40th reunion. And then after that, I've got a trip to the States with my son and then following that trip to Europe. And I'll be broken up to go back to work, I suspect. <laughs> and after you retire, I guess you're not going to be doing any more flying at all? No. In terms of you actually flying the plane, I mean. No, I intend letting the license lapse. Um, and a lot of people wonder why I can do that. But I don't have any more boxes to tick. I haven't flown a light aircraft in 35 years or so. But the smallest thing I've flown in that period of time was a 767. I'd be dangerous, I think, in a little aeroplane. <laughs> I also have a friend of mine 
Ross Kelly was uh, badly injured in that accident over in South Africa well, last year now. Oh, yes, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. I, know, I mean, I survived aeroplanes for all those years. I don't know that I need to go and continue to attempt fate with little ones. Big ones I don't mind, but not little ones. Fair enough indeed. And do you get uh, lifetime staff travel now from Qantas or any, anything like that? Or uh, are you now going to be paying fewer tickets from here on in? Well, as you know, you helped me get the uh, tickets up to Europe. Um, and they were, they were actually with Singapore Airlines. Um, I do get staff travel. Uh, the problem with staff travel is that it's space available. And that just means the seats have to be otherwise empty. And it's pretty hard to make a holiday work with you doing that. And I just think these days, tickets are so cheap, you may as well just buy a real ticket with somebody, turn up at the airport, you know, it's their problem to get you there. You know, if the airplane's late or you miss your connection, not your problem. Whereas staff travel, you know, it works for some people, but I don't really think I need to worry about it too much. It's, it's nice when it works, but I guess you can end up, you know, going to the airport and then just going home again at the end of the day because there's no seats. So it's not, not a particularly nice way to start or end a, a holiday. It can be quite expensive too because if you end up, going backwards and forwards to the airport a few times, you're paying for hotels and accommodation in places like Dubai. Um, it very quickly adds up to enough money that you could have bought a discount ticket with somebody and not have gone through the mess at all. So, you know, it's look, it's a nice perk if you want, and it does work for domestic travel, but I'd be pretty wary about using it overseas. Fair enough. And uh, finally, John, I'm sure that the aviation industry has changed you know, measurably since you've started your career. Do you have any advice for a youngster that's maybe considering now uh, starting a career in aviation? That's a fairly hard one. As I tell everybody up front, the best money, best training you can't buy is from the Air Force. So that's the best place to go. The aviation has changed in that it used to be a lot of general aviation people and they would work their way up. And now GA is pretty much dead. So it's much harder for people to start. You end up either in the military, difficult, or through one of these cadet schemes. And I'm not 100% convinced about the, the cadet schemes, but they're very selective from day one. You can't just go and get a licence and you need to have a lot of money for a start. So it's changed. The Even pilot training has become a huge business that someone like Qantas is running. You know, Qantas has got this cadet system, which may be for pilots, but it's actually a business in its own right. So I tell most guys, if you're going to, you want to be a pilot, first up, go and get a job that will put bread on the table first because most guys don't get there. Mm-hmm. I uh, had quite a few friends at university actually who were studying to become pilots and they had a lot of debt. They were paying, I think, $100,000, $120,000 just to do their pilot training. Do you think it's worth it? If you can get a career like mine, it's wonderful. Um, I heard that a few years back there were 60,000 pilots in Australia. There's about 83, 80 captains. You know, the, the odds of actually getting to the top of the tree aren't that high. Mm. Even looking at, say, 737s and like... There's only, I don't know, I mean, there'd be, what, 6,000 airline pilots in the entire country? So one in 10 of people with licences. Um, it's a pretty cutthroat thing. The Air Force is cutthroat. They'll hack people at the drop of a hat. And the civil, civilian world is, is cutthroat in the same way. You've got to have the money. You've got to be able to get in to the courses to start with. So if you were a young fellow wanting to learn how to do it, go away to university and get an engineering degree or something like that that you can actually will feed you and give you a career 
and then do the subjects and learn how to fly on the side. You can still get from there to an airliner. There's plenty of blokes I flew with had degrees in other subjects and hadn't done these aviation courses. In fact, the aviation course kids were the rarities. Well, that's really interesting insight. Thanks a lot. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, John. And I'd just like to say thank you very much for your contribution to AFF over the years. I know a lot of AFF members really appreciate your insights on Ask the Pilot and elsewhere on the forums. And congratulations on a stellar aviation career and all the best with your retirement. Okay. Well, thank you, Matt. You'll see me on the forum. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Bartels. That's it for another episode of AFF On Air. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the episode notes for more information about anything in today's episode. Here you'll also find a link to an AFF thread where you can discuss anything from this episode, provide feedback about the podcast, or ask me a question. I do love getting your questions and I'll do my best to answer them in a future episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do consider subscribing. That way you'll be the first to receive each new episode when they're released every second Saturday. And I'd also really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a comment on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast, such as Apple Podcasts. And of course, please tell your friends as well. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. Until then, happy flying.